Save us, God, from our own ways. Save us from ourselves. Save us from misunderstanding. Save us from hard hearts. Save us to yourself. Save us in your word. Save us to your grace. Save us for your glory. We uh, ask that as we open your word together that you would give us eyes that are good to see and hearts that are good and receptive soil. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly and forever forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So we are continuing this morning with our study of Jesus' so-called Sermon on the Mount, found in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. I'm using as a subtitle for this study, Living in God's Kingdom, because in many ways, that is exactly what Jesus' sermon is largely about. You remember that back in chapter 4 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus began his public ministry, and Matthew tells us that preaching, uh, Jesus' preaching focused on two things. First, repent, uh, or change your mind, think differently, think again, reconsider, change your view, change your life, repent. And then the second thing was Jesus announcing the kingdom of the heavens or the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God was near. It was close by in a way that it maybe never had been before in availability and accessibility. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And everything that we covered over the first three weeks has in some ways, not always, but in some ways been prelude or introduction to what we're getting to this morning, Jesus' teaching about what living in God's kingdom really looks like, a sort of righteousness, Jesus said, that surpasses the righteousness of even the most righteous people in Israel. Jesus called people to repent because the kingdom of heaven was near. Jesus declared that all sorts of people, and even maybe especially unexpectedly, Blessed people were blessed, not because of who they were or anything they had done or anything they would do one day, but simply because God is gracious and God was for them and God was near them. That's it. They were blessed. And then Jesus said to those whom he had called to be closest to him at that time and to learn from him, his 12 apprentices or disciples, He said, you guys are the salt of the earth. You are, you are the light of the world. Therefore, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This kingdom into which Jesus had called and was calling his disciples and followers and students was not a private matter. It was not a private faith. It was not for private consumption alone not to be kept in a box, and certainly not to be hidden away, and not for one's own benefit only, but rather Jesus' disciples and their good deeds would be for God's glory and God's glory alone. And they were to be the means through which and through whom the earth and the world would be preserved, we talked about, and healed, and seasoned, and illuminated, allowed to see which again was a pretty audacious thing for Jesus to say because these first followers of Jesus were some pretty ordinary people through whom God, though, would do some pretty extraordinary things. 
And at the heart of this extraordinariness would be their engagement with God's kingdom through the things that Jesus would teach them, that, they, that he was about to teach them, and thus through the things that in response to Jesus' teaching they would do and they would not do. Which gets us closer to where we're going to begin this morning. Last week in verses 17 through 20 of chapter 5 in Matthew's gospel, we heard Jesus saying that he did not come, you remember, to abolish the law, but instead to fulfill it. And we talked about what that fulfilling meant in a variety of ways. And this statement from Jesus was not out of the blue. There's a good chance, there's a reasonable chance that there were a lot of people, and especially the religious people of that day, many of them, maybe most of them, thought that Jesus was pushing away the law, that he was maybe seeking to subversively abolish the law, that maybe Jesus was anti-law, anti-scriptures, anti-Jewish Bible, anti-Jewish customs, anti-Jewish religion, against or opposed to the Jewish religious establishment, their traditions and scriptures, because Jesus had the audacity to announce that the kingdom of God, for whom all of these people had been looking, waiting, longing, hoping, that it would return to Israel, that Israel would rise again as God's kingdom. And Jesus announces rather audaciously that the kingdom of God had, was, is coming near because of and in him, though, through him. Because he announced and declared that people, many of whom didn't seem to be blessed, were in fact blessed by God, they thought, how can this be? This isn't the way our religion works. Because instead of choosing the best and the brightest or people with solid religious pedigrees and performances to be the salt and the light of the earth, Jesus instead chooses commoners, many of whom were unclean. Some people thought that Jesus really was undermining their scriptures. Many people, especially the religious leaders, understood righteousness to be a certain sort of way and thing, and Jesus is undermining that, it seems, by who he's choosing. They suppose that Jesus must have had a very low view of Scripture, which, regardless of which party one was a part of, was a heinous sin. And that day, one had to have a very high view of Scripture. Or that Jesus was advocating that the Jewish Scriptures could be, maybe could be ignored or set aside or suppressed or minimized. But Jesus declares, as we read last week, in no uncertain terms, that he didn't come in to abolish the law. Don't worry. But instead, he comes to fulfill it to fulfill it, to make it complete, to fill it up. To show its fullness and its true depth. And this is what Jesus would immediately begin to do. Chapter 5, now verse 21. Listen closely. This is the word of God through the Son of God, Jesus. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and they all did that sort of thing back then, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar, which is kind of ridiculous when you think about the temple. I'm going to leave my dove. I'm going to leave my animal. I'm going to leave my coins, my stuff right there and expect it to be there when I get back. Unlikely. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. 
Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny justice. And Jesus begins this section with the words, you have heard that it was said to people long ago. And it's with those exact same words or similar words that Jesus begins this and the next five sections in his Sermon on the Mount. And in this case, as is often but not always the case, Jesus refers back to the Jewish scriptures and to some authoritative words for the Jewish people. In this case, the Ten Commandments, specifically the Sixth Commandment, very authoritative for the Jewish people. Thou shalt not murder. You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, at which point most of us, at least for a moment, are feeling pretty good about ourselves. Are we not? Because we haven't murdered anyone. I would imagine that no one here this morning has committed murder against the law of the land, willfully ending another person's life. And so we're feeling pretty good about ourselves as we begin reflecting on the Ten Commandments. First one, well, number six, but the first one we're talking about, check, done, I'm in a pretty good place. And feeling pretty confident, actually, about the next nine. But Jesus says, but I tell you, and Jesus does this six times also. Biblical geeks call these six. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, Jesus, six antitheses. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And the Greek grammar and construction is such that the I is overly emphatic. It's funny because it sounds like an old waffle commercial. Uh, in Greek, it's ego, lego. Yeah, and ego is I and lego is I tell you. And so uh, Matthew's Greek construction really emphasizes I but I tell you, you have heard that it was said, but now I tell you. Jesus speaking his authority. I've only ever known one person in the church that I've served who's murdered someone. It was a person, a man. For a while sat, usually often on the first or second pew in the sanctuary with his sons, little boys. And then one day he was charged with murder and convicted. He's serving a life sentence right now in prison. God bless him. But other than that person, probably none of us have ever committed, uh, committed murder, murdered another person. If you have, I strongly encourage you to turn yourself in today. That would be the right thing to do. Not here, but down at the police station. But how many of us have been angry with a brother or sister? Someone close to us, someone in our family, someone in our church, someone in our circle, go ahead, raise your hands. How many of us have murdered? No, but how many of us have been angry with someone? How many of us are continually angry in some way with someone? Jesus took his disciples and the world's understanding of murder to another level, but more so to a deeper depth. You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, which must mean the judgment of God rather than some human court, because Jesus uses that same phrase in the next sentence where he says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will, again, be subject to judgment. And no person has ever been prosecuted in court, in a court of law, for being angry. Because being angry begins and in many ways happens on the inside and in one's heart, which is really difficult to prosecute, is it not? 
except for God, who sees all things, knows all things, who, as he said to Samuel, looks at the heart. God is concerned with people's hearts. That doesn't mean that God doesn't care about the outward and physical actions, but they all begin and they emanate. Jesus said, Jesus knew from within, from the heart. And so Jesus turns our eyes to where God's God's eyes already are, to the inside. But what is anger? John Stott describes anger as an ugly symptom of a desire to get rid of somebody who in some way stands in one's way. An ugly desire to get rid of someone in some way who stands in my way or your way. Dallas Willard describes anger as a spontaneous response and as a feeling that seizes us in our body and immediately impels us toward interfering with and possibly even harming those who have thwarted our will and interfere with our life. He goes on, the primary function of anger in life is to alert me to an obstruction to my will and to immediately raise an alarm and a resistance before I even have a chance to think about it. Of course, by such definition, anger itself is not sin, but anger, the anger that is a reality among us, is so much more than this and quickly turns in almost every case to sin and to something that is inherently evil. Some degree of malice is contained in every degree of anger. Some degree of malice is contained in every degree of anger. But there's more. Anger is not only spontaneous, but the anger that is a reality among us in much, is much more than this and quickly turns to something that is inherently evil, some degree of malice. There it is. But there's more. We can and usually do choose or will to be angry. Yes, anger first arises spontaneously, but we can actively receive and decide to indulge it, and often we do. Usually we do. We may even become an angry person, and any incident can invoke from us a torrent of rage that is kept in constant readiness, percolating, keeping warm on the back burner. Hence the prevalence in our world of so-called road rage. And each year in our supposedly Christian country, 25,000 homicides, murder. And then there is anger's twin brother, contempt, defined as scorn or disdain, the intent and the effect for which or of which is always to exclude someone, to push the other person away to leave them out and isolated, which helps explain why Jesus is so adamant about this as he continues. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, just says, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. Raka was an Aramaic word that meant uh, utter contempt, empty intellectually, having an empty skull, brainless, one might say. It was worse than being angry in as much as a critical or condemning utterance is worse than a feeling unexpressed. These are in some ways degrees, but a feeling kept inside maybe isn't as bad for everyone as an utterance expressed. And then there's the word fool, which in Greek is moros. You can guess which word in English that might lead to. 
It denotes stupidity or foolishness or being morally worthless. Whereas the word raka scorns a person's mind, the word moros scorns a person's heart and their character. And so is an even more severe condemnation. And whereas calling someone raka fool may put a person before a judge and jury, calling someone a fool puts them in danger of the fires of Gehenna, which was this valley just outside of Jerusalem where people, Jerusalem, the people threw all of their trash and just burned it and burned it and burned it. And it was a constant place of fire and became an image or a metaphor of God's judgment and eternal death. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. And so Jesus states with much more serious consequences what our parents and teachers said to us when we were children, you better be careful what you say, you better watch what you say. What we say about people and what we say to people can have significant consequences, not only for the other person, but also for us. Not only at the other person, but also for us, for me. Whoever said that sticks and stones can hurt my bones, but words can never hurt me, should be canceled (laughs) in our world today. Because we all know that that's just not true. That the one who speaks or thinks such things according to Jesus does in fact murder. One author writes, indeed, anger is in its own right, quite apart from any acting it out further or further consequences, an injury to others. Indeed, anger in, in, in its own right, quite apart from any acting it out or further consequences, exacts an injury to others. When I discover your anger at me, I am already wounded. Your anger alone will very likely be enough to stop me or make me change my course, and it will also raise the stress level of everyone around us. It may also evoke my anger in return. Usually it does, precisely because your anger places a restraint on me. Thus, anger feeds on anger. Anger begets anger. And we see it in relationships. We see it in our community. We see it on Facebook and next door. We see it in wars that seem to get hotter and hotter and hotter. And while Jesus warns about outbursts of anger, scorn, and derision in verse 22 as punishable by hellfire in verses 23 and 24, all of a sudden things shift a little bit. And the forgiving grace of God comes to the front. While anger is damnable, genuine repentance opens the door to reconciliation with God as well as with the injured brother or sister. Therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar and remember there that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. To put this in modern terms, if you're on the way to church on Sunday morning and you're driving your car or riding your bike or riding on public transportation, and remember, God brings to your mind, oh yes, that person has something against me. I've been angry at them. I've poisoned our relationship with my anger toward them. Stop what you're doing, pull over, get off of your bike, pull out your cell phone, and place a call. 
right then and there. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Whatever our gift to God, its acceptance seems to be conditional upon honest repentance concerning the ways we have injured our neighbors. There is still time for repentance. One must seize the opportunity before it's too late, Jesus says. And there's more. Jesus says to settle matters quickly with one's brothers and sisters, but also particularly with one's adversary. Did you see? One's enemies. How easy it is to develop anger toward one's adversaries and to not only develop that spontaneously, but to embrace that. And then to speak that anger through name-calling and slander and derision and so forth. But doing so only allows one to stew in such anger where it festers and will never bring two people back together, but will only deepen the abyss between us, between you and them, between us and them. Anger kills relationships. And Jesus is interested in ceremonial righteousness. He's not against that but he seems to be more interested, at least in Matthew's gospel, in ethics, which lead to relationships. He's more concerned, quoting the Old Testament multiple times in Matthew, with not so much sacrifice, but mercy. And so if we want to avoid committing murder in God's sight, we must take every possible positive step to live in peace and love with all people, beginning in the heart. Who are you angry at today? With whom are you angry today? About what are you angry today? Who have you called a name in the past year, the past month, the past week, this morning? Who do you despise or resent in your heart? Who have you ever called a knucklehead or brainless or heartless or a moron? I, just a little short quiz. Anyone ever thought or verbalized that someone else on the freeway was a moron? Like, I've, I've used that word somewhat regularly. This is the sort of righteousness to which Jesus is calling his disciples that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees who were quite content, quite pleased, quite satisfied, and quite, quite proud of themselves, as many of us are, because they kept the bare minimum of the sixth commandment by not spilling another person's blood to the point of death. This is the righteousness of the Pharisees. Jesus is calling his people, his disciples, the light of the world and the salt of the earth to a different kind of righteousness. In some ways, we live in an angry culture, at least from my point of view. There are genres of music, facets of our culture, slices of our world that seem particularly angry. Certain sports and ways of going about them. The political arena seems to have a lot of anger 
on both sides and in different places. Our world in some ways and some of our leaders in some ways seem to encourage anger and even thrive in it. You may or may not agree, Dallas Willard uh, wrote that anything you can do with anger, you can do better without anger. It's a matter of disposition and how we are seeing the others. Jesus calls us to love the other. Certainly there are times and ways and about things where there is a righteous anger. Most of that's not what we're dealing with here and kind of another story. The teachers of the law and Pharisees were evidently seeking to restrict the application of the sixth commandment to the deed of murder alone, to the act of spilling human blood and homicide. If they refrained from this, they considered that they had kept that commandment. But Jesus disagrees. You have heard that it was said, but I say. The true application of the sixth commandment, prohibition, was much wider and much deeper and much more beautiful, Jesus maintained. He included thoughts and words as well as deeds, anger and insult as well as murder. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven, but clearly Jesus wants people to pour into the kingdom of the heavens. Had a conversation with someone recently. They came to me and wanted to talk about some words that they had spoken. Fair enough. We probably all need to do that, to have those relationships healed and restored and made clean, a fresh slate. So I want to invite us uh, today to... Take the little piece of paper in front of you. Take one of those blue pens that's in front of you if you don't have something else to write with. And write down on there if there's any anger in your heart, if you've spoken any hard words to anyone among your brothers and sisters or toward your enemies. Before you get to the altar, we're sort of already here in some ways, But before we go another day or another hour or another minute, to acknowledge those things, to confess those things, to repent, because the kingdom of the heavens in a whole different way and a renovation of our hearts is possible and it is near and it's waiting for us. So I want to ask you or invite you to write down whatever you need to write, whatever would be good for you to write, acknowledge, confess, repent. And then while Stephen's playing some music in just a minute after and as we pray, you're welcome to come up and throw those in the basket as a way of uh, acknowledging and presenting that to God and repenting. God is uh, faithful to his promises and not slow to fulfill them, as Peter wrote, but he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance and eternal life. I found these words buried back in John's first letter. Chapter three, he wrote, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. 
Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Oh, God wants his eternal life to reside in each one of us and us in it. May we be a constantly repenting people and may we find God's grace in that, a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and a kingdom that waits for us with open arms. Let's pray. You are the King God who hung with arms spread out on a cross, dying in our place, not in anger, but in love, ready not only to forgive and to heal, but to teach a better way, a better path, a way of freedom and life and goodness and love. Help us to enter Help us to repent, to change our minds, to change our lives by your grace and with the power of your spirit. Forgive the hard words that we've spoken to other people, toward other people, at other people. Whether we've used the word fool or raka or any of a variety of other words available to us. Forgive us, strike those words from our lips and more so from our hearts. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and in the power of your spirit. May it be so. Amen.